Today's scripture comes from Jonah 3, 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us once more. So, Father, we come to you now asking you to speak to us. God, we, we, we need to um, see your son Jesus this morning. It's when we see him more clearly that our lives are transformed, that we're equipped and adequately sent out of this place, Lord. And so do that work in us this morning. Speak to us through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about um, six months ago, the pastoral staff from all of the various Christ City churches, including four ministry residents, there's, there's 15 of us, are sitting in this tiny little garage that's been transformed into a, an office space, and we're discussing uh, the series that we wanted to do this fall, so right, right now. And, and just to give you a little bit of a um, behind-the-scenes picture of the way this works, uh, each of the Christ City churches has the prerogative to do any sermon series. As long as they're preaching from the Bible, that's okay. But what happens is we come together and we go, okay, if we were to do something together, if we're going to go through the same book of the Bible, what, what would we choose? hoping that we might actually glean some information from one another and we actually might be better equipped as pastors to serve our various churches. And so the, the, the pastors come to me knowing that we're the ones planting a church and they go, hey, Daniel, what, what do you think would serve Surrey? And instantly I said, I want to go through Jonah. And they, they, they went along with it. Um, the reality is it, it hasn't been probably six months ago that I wanted to go through Jonah. It's probably been a year. Ever since I felt assured that God was calling us to plant here, I felt like we needed to be in Jonah. And the reason is that some of the themes in Jonah, I think, are so important for us. There's, Jonah deals with issues such as racism, uh, self-righteousness, sin, forgiveness, the, the, God's love for cities. But most importantly... Probably at the center of this book is God's love 
for people and his using us in that mission. God loves people and wants to use us in that mission to save people. Uh, Each week at the end of our gatherings, we end our time together with three words, right? You are sent. And we get those words from the Gospel of John. This is, this is one of the very endings of the book. Jesus is with his disciples, and he, he tells them this. He says, John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. He's just risen from the dead. They're a little bit spooked. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You are sent, just as I have been sent. And the reason we end our gatherings with those three words is because I'm trying to remind us of our identity, which is so central to our Christian faith. We are those who are sent ones. Jesus did not die so that we could have a little sing-song and chat once a week on a Sunday. That's not, that's not why we're here. That's, that's not why Jesus came and died. His blood was shed. He died on the cross to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And the way God brings about that salvation is through us. Is by actually sending us out into every nook and cranny of our globe and every nook and cranny of our city and calling people to find salvation in him. That's why we exist. Now, I recognize... There is a difficulty in living into that sent identity, right? Our, the, the pushback comes threefold. It comes from our, uh, the world, who says, you know what, you should just keep that, those thoughts to yourself. It comes from our flesh, which is fearful and afraid of how people will respond. And it comes from the devil, who would want to make us believe that the task set before us is frankly impossible. Which is, again, why I think we need Jonah. The book of Jonah shows us that God uses unlikely vessels to accomplish that which is impossible. And and I'm not talking about the fish, right? The the fish is such a minor part in this book. I heard one pastor say, uh, the fish is just God's version of Uber, right? So, so, So Jonah's running away from God, and God sends the little Uber, the the fish, to swallow Jonah and bring him back to where he's supposed to be. That's really the whole purpose of the fish. And look, it is amazing. What we just read and what we went through last week in chapter 2, God swallowing Jonah in the fish, keeping him alive for three days in the fish, vomiting him out on the shore. That's incredible. But really, that's actually nothing compared to the glorious things we're going to look at this morning. Last week was just an appetizer into the greatness of our God. One, um, one theologian, he puts it this way. He says, heretofore, you know he's old, but anyways, heretofore the emphasis has been upon the prophet's preparation. Tremendous as the miracle of Jonah's preservation in the sea monster has been, it's more a preface than a conclusion. If the miracle of the fish is great, that of this chapter is greater. For here is the record of nothing less than the greatest mass conversion in history. The way we live will be entirely dependent upon how great a picture of God we have is. If our God is just a little bit great, 
well, then maybe I give him a little bit of my trust. Maybe I let him into a little bit of my life transformation, a little bit of my time. But if our God is really the greatest thing that there is in this world, then he gets all of me. Now I'm going to give every moment I have to serve him. So here's my hope this morning. I hope we would see as a church the greatness of our God specifically in the way he saves people, okay? So here's my, here's my outline this morning. Three points for us. Great grace, great power, and great response. Great grace, great power, and great response. With me? Okay, here we go. First point. First we see great grace. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. Sorry, that's chapter 2. That was a test. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. If you're, um, let's stop there for a second. If, if you're tracking with Jonah this far, um, the way God's just dealt with Jonah should surprise us. Because thus far, Jonah has been an absolute mess. He's totally, he's, Jonah's totally missed it. Right? So God tells Jonah, go east to Nineveh. And he's like, nah, I'm going west to Tarshish. I'm going to the other side of the world. Then God pursues him in a storm. And um, Jonah's like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to kick it in the bottom of the ship. He's asleep. The sailors are busy throwing things overboard, trying to save one another. Jonah's like, I'm out of it. I'm resting down here. Uh, the other sailors are praying. Jonah's silent. Even then, when the, the sailors know it's Jonah's fault that they're there in the middle of God's storm, Jonah's like, you know what? I would still rather die than go to the Ninevites. So why don't you just throw me overboard? And then Jonah's sinking down to the bottom of the ocean. And he goes, you know what? Actually, death does kind of suck. Um, so I would rather, God, if you save me. So God sends the fish to swallow up Jonah, rescue his life. And even still, Jonah's like, man, I'm pretty great. He goes, chapter 2, I remembered the Lord. I prayed, and that's why God remembered me. I'm a, I'm a pretty, big, pretty big deal. And now God spits him up onto the shore. And, so, and look, there's almost nothing redeeming about Jonah. Right? If this is any of us, we go look at Jonah and we go, thank you, next. Actually, uh, no thank you, next. You've done, you've done nothing for me. And yet, that's not the way our God deals with people. Our God is full of grace. He constantly is giving people what they don't deserve. Our God is a God of second chances. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. What's amazing is that he doesn't just forgive Jonah, though. Right? It would be one thing to say, okay, Jonah, I forgive you. You've totally been rebelling against me. I forgive you. But you know what? Just go back home. Just go home. Find someone else to do this. I, I love you. You need to know that. But go home. We're done. But that's not, that's still not the way God treats Jonah. God goes, jo Jonah, I have a purpose for you. I, I have a mission. I, I want you to be a part of this. Um, please, you, man, you need to hear this. 
some of you are so um, devastated by your sin. Either it's your sin or you've been sinned against and, and you just feel like you are not worthy. Maybe you go, maybe God loves me. Maybe. But I sure don't believe he can use me. You, you feel like you're this, this broken vessel. And your shame is preventing you from being used by God out in the world. Man, you need to hear God has a purpose for you. God bestows upon you dignity and value. He, he comes to you like you're his child. And he goes, here's my mission. Here's, here's what I'm up to in the world. I want you to be a part of it. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't push you aside and go, you know what? You go sit at the kids table while the rest of us adults who have our lives figured out deal with this one. I think, I think, look, if you believe that God loves you, um, or you're, you're fighting to believe that God loves you and yet you still feel like God can't use you in this world, I don't really know if you can believe God fully loves you. I think you will feel like you're a second-class citizen and you'll always struggle with your love. And God wants to use you. He has a plan for your life. He had a plan for Jonah. Now, as scandalous as God's grace is, it's actually not uncommon for God to work like this. It's not uncommon for God to pull people back into his mission. Listen to Matthew chapter 16. This is, this is really interesting. Listen to these words. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked them as his disciples, who, who do you say that the Son of Man is? He's talking about himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He calls Peter, Jesus calls Peter here, Simon Bar-Jonah. Um, what's interesting about that? So if we translate that literally, it, it's actually Simon, son of Jonah, or Peter, son of Jonah, except Jonah's not Peter's daddy. He's not. We know. Peter's dad's name is John, not Jonah. What is Jesus doing then, calling Jonah the son of, or calling Peter the son of Jonah? I think the reason is Peter also will be a total screw-up. At the end of, uh, before Jesus' death, right? Uh, Peter is his best friend. Peter's been with Jesus for three years. He's seen him raise people from the dead. He's seen him multiply the loaves and feed the 5,000. He's healed the sick. He's this incredible teacher. He's done amazing things. At the end of Jesus' life, right before he dies, Peter goes, I don't know him. I don't know who you're talking about, Jesus. I'm, I don't know him. And he denies him, not, not one time, not two times, three times. A little girl comes up to Peter and is like, aren't you, aren't you friends with Jesus? And, and Peter's like, I never met him. 
The, the reality is, is we're all like Peter. We're all like Jonah. We all need second chances. How many times have we gone, I don't know, I, I, just, I just, I don't want to share my faith about Jesus right now. I'm going to pretend like I don't know him. Or you're rebelling, you're just, you're just running away from him. Whether that's because you believe God's called you to something, you go, no thank you. Or just in your sin. You just go, I just think I know best God in this one. I got this on my own. You know what? You just go over there and let me do this. We're all like Peter. We're all like Jonah. And so we go, okay, yay, at the end of Jonah, uh, at the end of Peter's life, right? Or Jesus goes back to heaven. Jesus comes to, to, to Peter right before then. He goes, okay, I'm restoring you. I'm going to build my church through you. Feed my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep. Okay, I'm, I'm patting you on the back. Let's go back into mission. We go, yay, Peter's got it. Except he doesn't still. He still doesn't get it. He, he's again going to be a magnificent mess up. Again and again. Look, look at this. In Acts chapter 10, um, Peter is given a dream. He's given a dream. Jesus comes to Peter in that dream. And Jesus tells Peter, Peter, I want you to go to the Gentiles. I want you to go to the, the people who are originally outside of my community. Right? There's the Jews and the Gentiles. My plan is to save even the Gentiles. I want you to go to them. And Peter goes, no, thank you, Jesus. I don't, I think that's crazy talk. I think I'm, I'm good here. And so Jesus then has to send someone else a vision. And that person, his name's Cornelius. And uh, Jesus tells Cornelius to go and get Peter and give him a kick in the rear end. And so guess where Peter's hanging out? Check this out. Acts chapter 10. Then the angel who spoke to Cornelius had departed. So Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he, he sent them to, to Joppa. It's the same place Jonah was hiding out, in Joppa. You see, look, Peter doesn't need forgiveness. He doesn't need just a second chance. Jonah isn't just going to need a second chance. We need another chance. Our God isn't the God of second chances. He's the God of a thousand and one chances. Again and again and again we fail. And yet again and again and again our God comes to us and goes, I love you. You just got to trust me and I want to use you. And so Jonah gets the second chance. Jonah gets another chance. But he's not the only one who gets another chance in this chapter. Look who else gets invited into this grace. So verse 3 says this. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They get a second chance. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. It's supposed to be funny. Even the cows get a second chance here. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 
Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So, so who gets another chance? Jonah gets another chance. This religious snob who thinks he's better than everyone else, he gets a second chance. The commoner gets a second chance. Right, the first place Jonah goes and just to the general city. Just middle-class, hard-working citizens trying to make ends meet. They get a second chance. The king and the nobles get a second chance. The educated, the wealthy, the who's who of society, the people who are culture shapers, they get a second chance. And the Ninevites, these are Ninevites who get a second chance. The Ninevites were the baddest baddies of the East, right? They're the, they're the worst people in the world at that time. The, uh, um, Nahum describes uh, the Ninevites as murderers, those who do witchcraft, who sacrifice their children and are full of prostitution. That's the Ninevites. And God goes, you also get a second chance. Look, um, one of the pastors at Christ City, talking about helping one another out, he goes, there's not, um, there's not two categories. Sometimes we go, there's the deserving and then there's the undeserving. As though we can look at people and go, okay, you get a chance at grace. But those person, they're probably outside of that. Look, we can't look at someone and go, man, you're more likely to respond to Jesus and you're not. We, we can't tell about who's going to get a second chance, how they're going to respond based on the way they look, about their social standing in society, about how wealthy they are, how beautiful they are, what ethnicity they are, what religious background they come from. None of that actually matters. There's not, there's not two categories, deserving and undeserving. There's just lost people and found people. And if we've been found... Well, we all were once lost too. God delights to save all types of people. All types of people. So I don't know how you've come this morning. I don't know if you've messed up one time or a thousand times. I don't know how you've been rebelling. I don't know how you've been running away from God. I don't know if it's just a small thing or if it's been the thing you've done over and over and over again. You need to hear our God is a God of second chances. Our God's grace is greater than your sin. And so even in this moment, maybe this is God running you down. Maybe this is the word of the Lord coming to you just like it came to Jonah another time and says, trust me. Receive my grace. Let me just lavish you with my love and experience that. And then go out and invite others also into it. Our God is a God of great grace. But secondly, he has great power. He has great power. So, so God comes to Jonah a second chance, second time. He goes, okay, go to Nineveh. And so this time Jonah believes. So he makes the little trek up and to the east, he goes to Nineveh. It's probably an 800-kilometer journey. Maybe takes him a month or two. Depends how fast his camel walks. But he gets to Nineveh. And 
when he gets there, God tells him that he has a special tool. See, God does not send Jonah empty-handed into Nineveh. There's this subtle change from his first call to his second call. So, so listen to Jonah 1, 1, and 2. And let me compare it with Jonah 3, 1, and 2. So God comes, verse 1, chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But then we read this, chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's the message. God is narrowing down. He's being specific about the task he has for Jonah. Jonah, I want you to speak. I have a message for you. God equips Jonah with the power of his word. This whole chapter is trying to emphasize, I think for us, that it's God's word that actually has power. Listen to all these word talk, okay? This word language. Then the word of the Lord came, verse 1. Verse 2, call out the message that I tell you. Verse 4, and he called out. Verse 5, they called for a fast. Verse 6, the word reached the Lord, or the people, the king of Nineveh. Verse 7, he issued a proclamation by the decree. Verse 8, they called out mightily to God. It's the word, it's the word, it's the word that is spreading out like crazy. It's the word that has power. Nineveh is absolutely transformed. They Man, these are, again, the worst people. We'll look at this more next week. In the world at the time, full of evil and wickedness, and yet they repent. They repent. And interestingly, they do so despite the incompetence of the messenger. They respond to the message despite the incompetence of the messenger. Uh, Jonah... Uh, to use uh, a, um, an untheological word. He sucks. <laughs> he sucks. D- Jonah is an awful prophet. He, he's an awful messenger. Right? So verse 3, God tells Jonah, go into the city. It's a three days journey. And verse 4 tells us, Jonah goes in one day. He doesn't even make it halfway into the city. He's like, one day and good enough. Honestly, whatever, don't care. God, deal with it. I'm here. What do you, what, what else do you want from me, God? She goes one day into the city and then he, look at his message. His message is five words in the original language. That's it. Right? Verse, verse four says, 40 days, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's eight words in our English. In the Hebrew language, it's just five words. Now, some, some, some commentators go, well, maybe this is just a summary of Jonah's message. Maybe he said more. Look, maybe. I actually don't think he did. Because you, you go to chapter four, and you realize Jonah actually doesn't want the Nineveh, 
Ninevites to receive salvation. He's this grumpy, curmudgeon stench of a man who reeks like fish vomit. And in chapter 4, he goes, God, I don't even want them to be saved. And so I actually think that's it. Just five words. I honestly think Jonah walked into the city one time, said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall die. Um, if you want the, the uh, modern equivalent, I think it's y'all going to hell, suckers. And y'all, I'm counting as one word. That's his message. I think, to, um, to, to quote one pastor, he says, I think this is prophetic sabotage. And he's like, God, this is what you want me to do? I'm doing it. Now let me get out of here. And yet, and yet somehow it says that the entire city of Nineveh was transformed. Verse 6 says the word reached the king of Nineveh even. Look, it's not Jonah who reached the king of Nineveh. It's the word that reached the king of Nineveh. Jonah says the message one time and the word begins spreading like wildfire. It just passes from person to person in person. Right? Oh my goodness, God loves me and can save me. I realize that I'm guilty and needing forgiveness. I've got to tell someone. God, or you need to know, there's salvation in Jesus. Come and put your trust in him. And then it spreads and it spreads and it spreads. It gets all the way to the king of Nineveh. Look, if, if Jonah went to Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, and he said, okay, look, this is what we're going to do. We're all going to repent. Maybe this would have been like um, kind of like a social like governmental, institutionalized religion. But that's not the way it happens. The, the way we find out it happens is that the king is the last person to hear the message. The word has power. Even in the mouth of a lousy messenger. Uh, Charles Spurgeon He's regarded as one of the greatest preachers of all time. His nickname is the Prince of Preachers. That's a pretty cool nickname. Um, I wish I had that nickname. Uh, he lived during the um, 19th century, and he tells in his autobiography how he came to salvation, how he was saved. And he says this. He says um, he visited an old rundown chapel, and there was kind of this guest preacher that Sunday. It was this man with no formal education. No, no education, period. Didn't go to school. Not, not even just Bible school. Just didn't go to regular school. And the man was preaching on Isaiah 45. And his whole sermon were on these words. Look unto me and be ye saved. Look unto me and be ye saved. And Spurgeon tells this. He says... He stuck with it, the preacher, this man stuck with it, and had little else to say. Look unto me and be saved. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man don't need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. Man didn't need to be worth a thousand dollars a year. Just Look, and look, even a child can look. This is, this is the sermon Spurgeon's listening to. And then he transitioned. He says, and it also says, look unto me. It doesn't say look unto yourself. It's no looking good looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourself. Look to me, Jesus says. Look to Christ. 
Look unto me. And Spurgeon says this man went about for 10 minutes. I mean, that was like one minute on look and me. And so there's probably nine minutes left on be saved. And that's just the whole sermon. Just this lousy preaching. And yet at the very end, this preacher looked at Jonah and said, uh, looked at Spurgeon and said, you look miserable, my friend. You need to look. Stop looking at yourself and look to Jesus. And Spurgeon just said, the moment he said that, I just put my trust in Jesus. It just hit me all the way down and it changed me. This is the greatest preacher of all time. He's supposed to be someone who cares about arguments and fancy language and illustrations. And here's this man bubbling his way through this simple text, look unto Jesus and be saved. And he's like, that's all it took? It's not the messenger that has power. It's the message. And so look, church, what if all of a sudden we just became a church, a group of people who were just committed to telling other people about Jesus, where we stopped trusting in our own ability, where we stopped being so concerned about how great we are at communicating the gospel, and we just started talking. We just started telling people, hey, can I, can I tell you about Jesus? Hey, I know we've been friends for a while. I feel like there's part of me that I haven't really let you into. I actually feel like it's kind of a big deal about my life. Can, can I tell you that I once was a broken man without hope in this world, just, just trying to figure it out on my own, and then I realized the only hope I have is Jesus. And he came and saved me, and my life's totally different. I'm, I'm still a mess. I still sin, but I have hope of everlasting life. I just want you to know that that's changed me, and I actually believe it can change you too. What if we just started telling people that? It's going to be awkward. Absolutely. We're Christians. We're awkward sometimes. We'll just, let's just own that. It's going to be scary. Sure, we're not going to have all the right words. But it's not in how we say it. It's in what we say. It's in God working through his word to transform lives. Let's be that church. Let's just trust him and see what he does. If God's word can change the heart of the king of Nineveh, the most powerful king in the world at the time, he can change our city too. Lastly, we see a great response. A great response. How, how does Nineveh respond to the message of God's grace? I think there's a lesson here for, for us. This is how we are called to respond, I think, to when God shows us grace. Okay, so look, look at verse 4 and 5. So Jonah began to go into the city, go on a day's journey. He called out, y'all going to hell, suckers. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And verse 5 says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Nineveh, how did they respond? With belief. With belief. Now, when, when, we, uh, when we hear the word belief, often in our society, what we mean when we say we believe something is, okay, thank you for telling me something. That's interesting. I'm going to 
put it in my mind. I'm going to find a place to jam it in there. There's a whole bunch of things going on up in there. But I'll find a place to fit it in. And, and maybe if time allows or if things are really bad in my life and I need another way out of things, then I'll, then I'll consider what you told me. Right? I think that's no- normally the way we think of belief. But when the Bible talks about belief, it, it talks about an entirely brand new perspective. It's, it's a new lens through which you see everything else in the world. Belief goes all the way down, and it's supposed to change all of us. And I think there's two changes specifically we see in this text. There's a change of attitude and a change of action. Change of attitude and action. Look, look, at, look at verse 6 and 7. We see a change of attitude here. So the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. There's a change in attitude here. What this king of Nineveh is doing is he's telling people, look, let's have an outward display of an inward reality. Let's make sure our actions reflect how we really feel. How is it that we feel? Well, the king of Nineveh, he puts on sackcloth. This would have normally been made of goat skin, would have been incredibly itchy and uncomfortable. And the king's saying, look, I'm uncomfortable with the way I've been living. I realize, man, if I live this way, if I keep going this way, man, that's just going to rub the wrong way. I'm uncomfortable with the way I'm living. Also, sackcloth would have been clothing worn by the poorest of poor. Would have been a great act of humility to take off his royal purple robes and put on dark, itchy sackcloth, almost like a burlap sack. This is the king of Nineveh. He is the most powerful man in the entire world. He, he's king of the greatest empire and the greatest army that exists in the world. And he goes, I realize I've done it all wrong. I messed up. There's a humility. Then he says he sits in ashes. Sitting in ashes would represent death. He's going, this is, this is what I was continued doing. This is what I deserve. I deserve death. And then he says, look, let's not eat. We're not going to eat food. We're not going to drink water. He's saying we're going to live a life of weakness. We're going to say that we can't do this on our own. We can't save ourselves. We're, we're too weak in this. Our walls might be three chariots wide, but they cannot save us. We need help from the outside. We need God. We're, ne- we're weak people. And so the king has this incredible change in attitude. He humbles himself and he admits that he was completely wrong. And then he says, let's not just have a change of attitude. Let's have a change of action. So he says in verse 8, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God, and then let everyone, he says, turn. Turn from his evil way and from his violence that is in his hands. That language of turning uh, is the Hebrew word shuv. Elsewhere in the Bible, um, it's translated as repent. The, The idea is you're changing directions. 
So you're once walking a certain way. This is what you believe brings you life and joy and happiness. This is what you believe saves you in life. And all of a sudden you have a change in mind and you change directions. You turn. You do an about face and you begin living a different way. See, repentance is not just feeling bad about what we've done. It's living differently. And repentance and belief are just two sides of the same coin. They have to go together, right? So if I really believe that I've been living wrongly, that I've gone about things wrongly, and that there's something else that gives me life and that can save me, well, that means, of course, I'm going to change directions. Of course, I'm going to live differently then. And if I really want to live differently, what is it that's going to be able to motivate me and change me to do that? Well, it's believing that that old thing actually brings death, but that new thing brings life that the new thing is better. And so repentance and belief, they, they always go together. And so look, when God comes to us, whether the first time or the second time or the thousandth time, he invites you to respond in repentance and belief. And so maybe that's you right now. Detached from God, recognizing you've been cut off from Him, you've been going about things the wrong way, and what you deserve is death. Man, repent and believe. Trust in Jesus. Trust that He loves you. Trust that His way is better. Trust that He can save you. And then turn and follow Him. So let me, let me land the plane. Um, there's still just one problem. The problem is, is okay, God gives Jonah a second chance, gives him a third chance, a fourth time, fourth chance. He gives Nineveh a chance and a chance and a chance. And yet still they fail. Still they fail. It doesn't matter how many chances God gives Jonah or Nineveh or us, it still is the reality that at the, at the end of all those chances, we still mess up. Um, Thomas Carlyle, he was a poet. I came across some of his poems on Jonah, and he wrote this about Jonah chapter 3. He kind of wrote a poem on each chapter of Jonah. This is his poem on chapter 3. He says this, Think twice before you pardon. This is Jonah talking to God. Think twice before you pardon. Men repent, even in ashes, but repent again of their repentance. Take the wiser bias of my advice, Confine your charity to such good neighbors as your humble servant. I love that. Men repent, but they repent of repenting. Man, that's us. That's Nineveh. That's Jonah. Okay, I realize I'm going the wrong way. I'm going to turn. I'm going to live differently. But then all of a sudden, I repent of my repenting, and I'm going back to the same thing I started with. And I think we realize if that's true of us, what real hope do we actually have? What, what is the basis then of our acceptance? If we really know that deep down we're still flawed, and if God is really as great as I think he is, then I can't be reconciled to him. Him being perfect and me even being that tiny bit imperfect separates me from him. And so what hope do I actually have that I could be forgiven? The good news is this. 
God doesn't just give us a second chance. Hear this. He gives us a second Adam. He doesn't just give us a second chance. He gives us a second Adam. What I mean by this is that God doesn't just give us another chance to clean up our lives. He actually sends someone to make us clean. To declare that we are clean. Look, God the Father sent his son Jesus, who was fully God, fully glorious. And Jesus, what did he do? Philippians 2 tells us he got off of his heavenly throne. He took off his royal robe, his glorious robe. This is the creator of the universe, not the king of Nineveh. The creator of all things, the majestic one, taking off his heavenly robe. And what does he do? He condescends and puts on scratchy, itchy human flesh. He descends and he puts on flesh and he walks among us. He, he walks the dirt of human existence. And then he dies. He goes to the cross where he hungers and he thirsts. Except he doesn't die because of anything wrong with him. He dies even though he's perfect for us. He takes our judgment and our punishment. He takes the judgment and punishment that Jonah deserves and Nineveh deserves and that we deserve on himself. And he pays for that punishment. And then he doesn't just, he's not sitting in ashes. He's laid in a tomb. Except three days later then he rises saying the debt has been paid. You're absolutely forgiven. There's no more sin to pay for. And if we trust in him, Jesus tells us he credits us with that cleanliness. You are forgiven. And you are clean if you trust in Jesus. We don't have to clean up ourselves. He cleans us up. He does the work. And so we will sin and sin and sin again. But our identity, if we are those who trust in Jesus, is one of saints. And God says we're clean and nothing, nothing, nothing can stain us. If we trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf, we'll be given another and another and another chance until one day we don't need any more chances. Because the God who died and rose again will come back. He'll invite us into his eternal life and sin will be no more. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Oh man, Lord, we will spend eternity trying to grasp the reality that the creator of all things came and died for us. The author of life laid in a tomb. God, would that just blow us away? God, if we're really going to turn, if we're really going to live differently, if we're really going to believe in you, Lord, we need to see you in all your glory. God, would, would that reality go all the way deep? Or would that be like a stick of dynamite that just goes all the way down into our hearts and absolutely blows up our lives and make us, us entirely new? And so God, overwhelm us with your grace and then Lord, send us out. Would we be so excited about what you've done that we'd have to share it with others? Do this, Lord, for your glory and also for our joy. God, we want to see other people come to know you as Lord and Savior. And so it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.